Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning and welcome to Grumlaw Online. We are so thankful that all of you have decided to join us here on this beautiful June day. Uh, Honestly, one of the greatest promises that the God of the universe offers us, offers you, is that as we move closer to him, he will always move closer to us. And so I invite you to keep coming back, keep exploring, keep moving closer to the God of the universe, who, mind you, is absolutely crazy about you. Today we are wrapping up a 10-week series, and yes, you heard that right, 10 weeks titled Follow. Uh, If you're new around here, or perhaps you've been kind of just popping in and out, and thus you've maybe missed a couple of weeks during this series, have no fear. You can always get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages. You can listen to the entirety of the series there, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you happen to grab those podcasts. Now, very, very practically speaking, What we've been doing in this series is comparing and contrasting the way of Jesus versus the way of this world, or as scripture, this book that we call the Bible often frames it, the way of our flesh. We've been diving into what it actually means to follow Jesus. Because as we've spoken about ad nauseum over these last 10 weeks, believing in Jesus just really isn't that hard, but following Jesus is an entirely different story. We've explored topics like discipline over comfort, truth over acceptance, service over self, confession over concealment. And today, I assure you, we're going to be ending on a high note as we talk about what is the key ingredient amongst all of these virtues. In fact, it's what actually Jesus himself said would be the defining mark of his followers. That this, he said, would be the secret sauce in grabbing the attention of a broken world and would make following him irresistible. It's, of course, this four-letter word, love. See, See, without love as the motivating factor, service, for instance, simply becomes a religious duty and something that you actually grow to resent. Rather than being seen as an opportunity to show Jesus to a broken world that so desperately needs him, it becomes a pious act that seats you on a judgmental throne over those who are only living for themselves. Without love, confession becomes false humility. Bearing your weaknesses only when it's convenient and when it'll win you praise amongst your peers. Without love, truth becomes a weapon cast to and fro to demonize the world and other people. Without love, discipline becomes an unbearable chore that weighs us down rather than something that actually offers us life and freedom. It's love that must go before us, with us, and after us. After all, it is love that led the God of the universe to willingly and sacrificially offer his life for our sin. See, Jesus didn't do this begrudgingly. No, he willingly carried out the most selfless, loving act that this world has ever seen because he so longs to be close to you. He so longs to have relationship with you. He so loves you. Now, now, one of the 12 disciples, one of these guys who followed Jesus around for the better part of three years, he went by the name of John. And ironically, he's the one whom Jesus would actually refer to as the one he loved. He, he frames it this way. He, he says, we know, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. 
well, how do we know how much God loves us? Like, oh yeah, he gave his life for us. So we're not simply putting our trust in some higher power. We're putting our trust in the love that got off of his throne, dwelt amongst us, and then offered his life for our sin and took upon himself the wrath of God so that we don't have to. We put our trust in Jesus who successfully predicted his own death and resurrection. We put our trust in our risen Savior who rose from the grave after being buried for three days and thus defeated sin and defeated death. It's not blind trust. It is an exceedingly informed trust that demands a closer look. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. See, God isn't simply loving or prone to show love. As John frames it here, he quite literally is love. The reason that we all actually understand love, we know it when we first felt it, we know it now when we feel it, None of us have ever taken a class on love. You didn't have to be taught what it would feel like. When you experienced it, you knew is because God is love. When you move about this temporary time on this earth, basking and resting in the love that comes from God, resting in the security as God's chosen, an image bearer whom Jesus would have died for, even if it was just you, you are living in love. When you are regularly and intentionally leveraging your life for the benefit of the people around you and thus truly following Jesus, you are living in God, living into who God created you to be before sin started wreaking havoc on your life and the lives around you. As the Sunday school song tells us, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, by our love. Or as I would ever so slightly modify it, they will know we are followers by our love. Admittedly, it doesn't really have quite the same ring to it. The world will know we are Christians, will know we are followers of Jesus by our love for one another and the world which we reside in. Now, what's interesting, is this right here, what we're talking about right now, this is basically controversial to no one. <laughs> See, I've never heard anyone retort, Christian, non-Christian alike, no way, I think we got to start loving less. I've never seen the flag being flown that reads, love loses. Our world, and when I say world right now, I'm largely referring to our American society, on the surface seems pretty pro-love. It's why we've become obsessed in this particular cultural moment as a society over racial justice, LGBTQ rights, gender equality. It's all being done in the name of love. As so many people have often framed it, can't we all just get along? So, so honestly, where's the controversy? Where, where's the pushback? I mean, who would push back against this? It, it would seem if there's anything within Christianity that the world and Christians can find almost universal agreement on, this would be it, right? Well, the answer is sort of. See, if we're asking, can we all believe in love? Sure, I think the answer is a resounding yes. Christian, non-Christian, white, black, left, right, young, old, we're all on board. But if the question is, and I'm confident this is actually what Jesus was getting at, can we all live in love, which is what John was writing about, it's a much different story. Now, now, now to illustrate what I mean, we're going to go into a bit of a deep dive this morning 
into the historical context and the narrative to where this framework was originally introduced. And for some of you, this is going to feel a little bit like sitting in history class in high school, but I promise it will connect by the end. And I think understanding the greater context will bring this subject to life in a way that you haven't appreciated previously. Now, now for those of you who may not be aware, Jesus was stepping into a largely Jewish world when he began his public ministry somewhere around 27 AD. And the Jewish people of his day, of which Jesus was a part of, Jesus was a Jewish man, that they took their rules very, very seriously. In fact, they had 613 of them that they tried to follow to the T. In fact, most Jewish men would have had all 613 of these rules memorized. But breaking these rules that only had practical implications, ceremonial washings, but banned from the temple for a period of time, but also social implications as well. You break the rules often enough and you were sure to be seen as like the social pariah and those who stuck to the rules the closest were elevated to the top of society. So so Jesus, he steps into this world, these these people who really love their rules and he starts saying things like, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, the law of Moses, the rules that we're referring to or the prophets. I, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we sitting here in 21st century America, we cannot appreciate just how offensive, just how absurd this would have sounded to that original first century rule-following Jewish audience. That they're looking at Jesus going, okay, you're trying to tell us that you have come to fulfill the law of Moses? You have come to fulfill the Jewish law? You're trying to tell us that the very document that we have literally dedicated our entire lives to is actually pointing to you? And Jesus, without flinching, looks right back at him and he says, exactly. At another point, he looks at these religious leaders, these religious experts, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Now, again, within Jewish tradition, it's God at the top. And then like a slight step below, it's Abraham and Moses. So again, to suggest that this would have been offensive would be like the grossest understatement of all time. That they're looking again at Jesus going, you are sort of not so subtly elevating yourself above Abraham. Jesus, do you realize how absurd that sounds? And in fact, you can read this account for yourself in John chapter 8 when Jesus goes on to double down on this and he's like, yeah, I wasn't kidding. You heard me exactly right. That they tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. That's how enraged they became. What will become Jesus' final meal with his closest friends, what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting around the table again with these 12 disciples. Keep in mind, all Jewish men who grew up in Jewish homes, who had had the Jewish faith indoctrinated into every fiber of their lives since birth. And he's sitting there with them celebrating Passover. And within the Jewish faith tradition, Passover is a big, big deal. You don't mess with Passover, where they celebrate when the angel of death passed over their homes when they were fleeing from Egypt. Far and away, the most important and significant of all the Jewish holidays. Again, you don't touch Passover. And Jesus looks right at these Jewish men without flinching and says, from now on, when you celebrate Passover, think of me. He's like, yeah, yeah, this bread, it represents my body, which is about to be destroyed for you. This cup of wine, it represents my blood, which is about to be shed from you. From now on, when you're thinking of Passover, when you're celebrating Passover, you're actually going to be celebrating me. And again, I'm telling you, in this moment, they should have all stood up and walked out. Like, Jesus, do you realize how insane that sounds? 
The, the, the best comparison that I could come up with to try to put it in like our terms to maybe get our heads around how crazy this would have sounded, th- this would be like me on the week before Christmas sitting in this chair, teaching all of you and be like, I know Christmas is right around the corner and traditionally we just kind of celebrate the, the birth of Jesus and that, that's a good thing, I guess. But from now on, when you're opening presents with your family, in fact, when you're trying to remind your kids that like, hey, this isn't just about gifts and presents, we're celebrating the birth of our Savior, rather than telling them that, from now on, I want you to celebrate me. I want you to look at your kids on Christmas and explain to them that Christmas is no longer about Jesus, it's all about Shay Prisk. Here's what I'm trying to make sure is abundantly clear. Jesus wasn't coming along to make like a slight tweak to the system. It was a complete overhaul, brand new. And at the center of this overhaul was the imperative, love God, love people. Jesus said this, will be the defining mark, not of my believers, but of my followers. In fact, at one point, someone finally musters up the courage to just kind of point blank ask Jesus the question, sensing that he was perhaps departing from the religious routine to just follow the 613 rules at all costs. This this expert in Jewish law just musters up the courage to ask Jesus, all right, wise guy, if these rules are suddenly not important anymore, then teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses within the Jewish law? And and, and this was a trick question. And and Jesus saw right through it. Nobody actually expected Jesus to answer because the minute you elevate one command over another, you're devaluing the others. It it is a lose-lose proposition for Jesus. But, But Jesus, rather than dodging the question, without skipping a beat, he looks right at this guy, this expert who, mind you, held extraordinary power and clout at this point in society. He looks right at him and says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and that would have surprised no one. This is the first and greatest commandment. But he goes on to say, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Jesus just came along and put loving people on the same playing field as loving God. He just took 613 and brought it down to two. For these religious experts, these were fighting words. He he just reduced 613 down to love God and love people. And, And by throwing that pesky adverb in there equally, he quite directly tells this Jewish audience who were obsessed with following the rules. Your love for God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for others. Now there's another guy who is well documented within the pages of scripture, really second to only Jesus himself, who, who went by the name of Paul. Chances are if you've spent any time uh, really in a church, you've probably heard of Paul before, who actually at one point went by the name of Saul. Uh, and, and to say that Paul was quite familiar with the Jewish religious system would again be a bit of an understatement. He, he knew it better than most. He, he was actually a Pharisee. It, it was this sect of Judaism that sought to follow the law closer than really anyone else. In fact, they were so obsessed with the law that they actually came up with a subset of the law that they referred to as the oral law. 
And as the title of this would suggest, these were laws that the Jewish experts interpreted out of the original 613, because apparently 613 wasn't enough. And then they forced these new oral laws upon the Jewish people. It was an unbearable and impossible task, to say the least, since, you know, they weren't even written down. These were just laws that were floating around in these religious experts' heads that they would selectively enforce when they saw fit. And and, and so, here's my point. If there was anyone that was going to be offended by Jesus taking the 613 plus hundreds more within the oral law and then reduce it to two, it it was going to be a guy like Paul. And, And as it would turn out, he was offended. He, he was enraged, so offended, so angry that he began to make it his life's work to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth and make sure Christianity did not make it out of the first century. So, so away he went all over the ancient Mediterranean world, arresting, persecuting, killing Christians until his Damascus Road experience. In, in an event that only God could have orchestrated, God himself meets Paul face to face and says, why are you persecuting me? And he completely flips the script on the life of Paul. In fact, again, at that time, as I already mentioned, he was called Saul. He's given a new name who went by the name of Paul. And now Paul is attempting to move forward the very movement that he once sought to destroy. Now, the reason I bring up Paul, and for those of you who are just kind of bored to tears right now, I promise I'm nearly done with this history lesson. We'll get to the practical here momentarily. The reason I bring up Paul is because a theme that you see all throughout Paul's writings And he penned nearly half of the New Testament through a series of letters that he wrote back to these early Christian churches that were sprouting up, again, all over the ancient Mediterranean world. A theme you see all throughout Paul's writings is a warning of mixing the old with the new. As already mentioned, Jesus didn't just come along to to tweak the Jewish religious system. It, It was a complete overhaul. But, but as we all know, in fact, as every single one of us have experienced, old habits die hard. And, and this was certainly proving the case amongst the Jewish people. That they, they had a hard time just letting go of 613 in favor of two. And so what many of them decided to do was blend a little bit of the old with a little bit of the new that Jesus had introduced. And as a result, they actually even received their own nickname, the Judaizers. And nothing ignited the righteous anger of Paul more than these people, the Judaizers, who were selectively enforcing parts of the Jewish law while simultaneously trying to embrace the new that Jesus offered. Because Paul knew better than anyone. Remember, he lived that life and thus knew what it was like to attempt to uphold that type of religious ethic. It was exhausting. In fact, it was impossible. And now he was living in the freedom found in Jesus and frankly just knew how much better it was. So he knew that that you mix in some of the old. It's only a matter of time before the old completely takes over and you are left with a twisted, perverted version of Jesus. You are quite literally morphing Jesus into your image rather than the other way around. And throughout Paul's letters, You can sense just how incensed he would become by people trying to adulterate the purity and the simplicity of the message of Jesus. He wasn't one to mince words. 
In fact, in his letter to the early Christian church in Galatia, at one point, he, he goes out to single out a, a particular group of these Judaizers who were trying to enforce one rule in particular that, that was uh, of significance within the Jewish faith. It was circumcision. These, these Gentiles who didn't grow up in, in Jewish homes, he was saying, hey, you now have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And, and Paul's going, no, 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 no. He actually says, I just wish that those troublemakers, these individuals who are trying to enforce circumcision on the Gentiles, who, who want to mutilate you by circumcision, would mutilate themselves. So we're like, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Like I said, a, a bit of a passion point for him. But, but returning to what he learned from Jesus himself, he, he implored that same audience and in turn all of us for you have been called to live in freedom. And he was experiencing that freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law, and again, I just want you to think about this for a quick second. Can you imagine how difficult this would have been for Paul to come to grips with this? That the 613 laws that he once held in such high esteem, he was going to reduce it to just one quick sentence. I mean, this was a difficult thing for him to let go, but he was experiencing the freedom that you can only find in Christ. And he so desperately wanted this for everyone else. The whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, your love for God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for others. Or as John framed it, live in love. Much different than simply believing in love or just imploring everyone around you to get along. Because while you may be tempted to think, wow, this whole Jesus thing, not as controversial as I thought. Just, just love everyone around you. as a big old Christian version of Woodstock. I mean, this actually sounds a lot like what our world is pushing. Maybe I actually can get on board with this Jesus guy after all. I mean, what's controversial about this? Remember. Remember that at the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man who is brutally tortured, beaten, and nailed to a wooden cross covered in his own blood and the saliva of other men. That is how far this goes. That is our true north when we consider what it means to actually follow Jesus. When we consider what it means to live in love. Here's my point. Following Jesus is less complicated, but far more demanding. And here's how I know that. And those of you who are watching right now who grew up going to church, you're going to understand this well. This is what got Paul so fired up. It is easy to find a place to hide within the religious system. There are always loopholes. Well, there's not really a verse for that. Well, that is actually, that's like in the Old Testament, so I don't think that really applies to me. I don't think that's really what the writer meant. Here's what actually the writer meant. I'm gonna go to confession and all is gonna be well. As long as I do this, then I'll be good. But good luck finding a loophole. Good luck finding a place to hide with the new that Jesus brought about. 
Good luck finding a loophole with this is my commandment, singular. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. From 613 down to two. And then Jesus just brought it down to one. And remember, Jesus, how, how did you go about loving me again? That's right. You gave your life for me. That is the difference between simply believing in love, holding up signs that read love wins, and actually living in love. So here's our takeaway today. The question that I am asking every single one of us to etch into our brains, particularly if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, remembering that Jesus himself said that this would be the distinguishing mark, not of simply his believers, but of his followers. The question that I want us to carry with us for the rest of our lives is what does love require of me? Less complicated, far, far more demanding. And here's what's so great, so penetrating about this question. There are no loopholes. There are no workarounds. I mean, come on, let's just be honest for a second. In virtually every single situation, you know the answer to this question. Maybe you come home from work been a long day it's been a long week and everything inside of you just wants to come home plop yourself on the couch and just zone out for the better part of a couple of hours until it's time to go to sleep but as you walk towards the living room you glance over into the kitchen and you see that there is a sink full of dishes and the little clean light on the dishwasher is just like beckoning to you what does love require of me it's not even that your wife is expecting it in fact, she actually expects you to just roll in and plop yourself on the couch. She is fully expecting that. That is kind of her role. That is her job. But again, what does love require of me? That, that lonely friend, that family member that you've kind of just labeled as annoying or, or needy, that they're calling you yet again, and everything inside of you just says to tap the button on the side of the phone and ignore it. Or do you spend some time just listening, being available to somebody that is hurting in so many different ways? What does love require of me? The neighborhood hoarder. Everybody knows the person on the street that has just let their entire yard, frankly, go to hell. You know, weeds are two feet tall, little tykes toys just sprung all over the, feet, the yard, and you're like, what the heck is going on there? And you drive by with judgmental eyes just about every single day. But they finally decide to clean up their yard on the hottest day of the year. And, and rather than just looking over and going, it's about time, do you, do you take a minute and realize, oh my gosh, I've never even learned that person's name. Maybe I should go home and, I don't know, put on some work clothes, walk down the road with a rake in my hand and just ask, hey, can I help? Can we get to know each other? What does love require of me? You pass the same homeless guy every single day on your way to work. And you've convinced yourself it would be reckless to give something to this individual. Because if I give this person money, they're obviously going to go spend it on alcohol. They're going to go spend it on drugs. And in fact, what would I kind of do with my time? I've developed this game where 
clever new ways to avoid eye contact with this pitiful human being. And so, you know, what do I do with that? What does love require of me? Opportunities all throughout the summer to serve alongside your fellow follower of Jesus. It's like it's the summer and it's hot and I only get so much time off with my family. And I, I, What does love require of me? Well, let's take this a little bit deeper. Coworker, the neighbor, the family member, the friend that, that has dug themselves into a terrible financial hole. You do the typical Christian routine where you just put your hand on their shoulder and say, I'll be praying for that. Or perhaps do you give it away? Do you sell the thing that has some value? I mean, I'm not insinuating that you even have a lot of margin, but maybe you sell some stuff and, and then just give the money to them. Maybe you even downsize your home and give those earnings to that other individual. What does love require of me? Let me twist this a little bit more. Hundreds of thousands of kids in foster care just in this country alone. Hundreds of thousands of kids who desperately need a loving, caring home. If every church in America just had one family who adopted one child, we would not have a single orphan in this country. But Shay, you don't understand, we're, we're about to be empty nesters. Shay, you don't understand. I mean, we already have three other kids and that's kind of challenging in and of itself, but what does love require of me? And I got to think, some of you are sitting there right now thinking, okay, Shay, you kind of lost me. When it was like unloading the dishwasher for my wife, I kind of get my head around that, but don't you think with all of the you know, foster care and like downsizing my home, you've probably taken this a little too far. Nobody actually lives like that, not so fast. It was living precisely like that, that grabbed the attention of and changed the world in the first century. It was living like this that caused Christianity to grab the attention of an empire and change the course of human history. A small band of followers of the way completely changed the world, and they did not do that by blending in. They lived radically different. At every impasse, they ask the question, what does love require of me? And rather than talking themselves out of it, or rather than spending two months praying about something that Jesus already made very clear, rather than conforming to what society or friends or even other Christians told them to do, they instead took reckless steps of obedience and love in accordance with what was modeled to them by their blood-stained Savior. The future of the Big C Church in America hinges on how we respond to this question. The impact that Grumlaw will have on this community has a direct line drawn back to this question. Your fellowship will be defined in accordance with how you answer this question. What does love require of me?